Everybody say hi to Joshua. Hi, Joshua. All right, we're going to uh, go through Exodus 7, 14 through 25 today. Exodus 7, 14 through 25. <clears throat> I was talking with uh, Pastor Dancy earlier this morning. He is going through 13 chapters of Isaiah in his sermon this morning, and he used half sheets of paper, one full sheet of a half sheet of paper, and then a half of the other half sheet of paper for his 13 chapters of Isaiah in his sermon. We're doing 11 verses, and I got this. So, two full sheets, and maybe we can do it. I don't know. Yes. Air. It is now 72 degrees. I'm cranking it down to 70. All right. So let's pray. Because that's always a good way to study. Let's begin with prayer. So let's do that. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for those who are here, uh, that, that they've come eager and ready to learn and, and hungry to hear your word. Pray that your spirit would move among us, open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to hear what you would say to us this morning that in this narrative of the first real plague in Egypt, the, the turning of the Nile into blood, show us how it, it pictures Christ and what you're doing in redemptive history, <clears throat> foreshadows what you're doing uh, in your people to redeem sinners and to bring them to yourself. We pray that you would, um, that you would quicken our minds and give us wisdom and discernment this morning and, and lead our discussion. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, last week we talked about the battle of the rods or the battle of the serpents. <clears throat> Give me a little bit of background on that. What, what happened there? Let's, let's start from there and move forward. They were all swallowed up. Hey, who, who was all swallowed up? All the snakes. All the snakes of the magicians of Egypt were swallowed up by what? Moses' rod that turned into a snake was 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 the, the conquering one. What did that What did that show? It showed the power of God because they were probably um, let's assume that they weren't being sorcerers and that the, their snakes actually turned into snakes. Okay. But um, that one staff that turned into a snake was more powerful than all of theirs. It was a battle of the gods. The swallowing up meant something. Consuming power. And and it showed that, you're right, it showed that God's power was larger and greater than all of the sorcery, all of the arts, all of the, the, the stuff that was going on in pagan Egypt. So there's this display, an open display, in the um, court of Pharaoh, and God wins. And yet, what did it say at the end? What happened? Pharaoh's heart was what? Hardened. Hardened. He's been publicly humiliated in his own court in front of all his magicians. His power of Egypt is swallowed up, devoured, destroyed, and yet his heart is still hardened. Okay. Chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning... As he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, 
The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take uh, even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. All right. Several things here. How does God start out this conversation? What does he do? What does he point out to Moses? His heart is hardened. The word here is actually the third type of Hebrew word, the third Hebrew term that's used to describe what's going on in Pharaoh's heart. This, the word, just, just for your next party, if you want a $10 word, is kabed. All right? It means to be heavy. To be heavy. And it's used kind of in relationship to Absalom's hair. Remember Absalom, David's son, set himself up against the king. He had gorgeous hair. It's wonderful. And it was thick and flowy, and it was heavy. Apparently, it was so heavy that he got caught in a tree and was dangling. It's a great story. I like it. Um, the other one is Moses' hands in Exodus 17, where it talks about how he's holding up his hands when they're fighting the people on the, on the plane, and his hands were getting heavy because when he kept his hands up, they'd win the battle. When they got heavy, he'd drop them down. They'd start losing the battle. And then you had um, Aaron and, and uh, one of the princes of Judah holding his hand up. Um, his name was Hur, I believe. Yeah, H-U-R, Hur. Ben-Hur, his son. Anyway, but here uh, in this sense, Kabed has a sense of, of quality, not just heaviness, but a quality. What's it made of? What's the characteristic of his heart? It's a term of judgment here. Pharaoh's heart is weighed down with something. What is it? What's it weighed down with? What do you think? Okay, his continuing rebellion against God weighs it weighs the heart. It's an interesting phrase here. Go ahead. Pride. Pride. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
So his, his concern for his own majesty, the, pe- the, the, the power of his own people, it's weighed down, kind of pride, but relation to the Egyptians. Um, it's an interesting turn of phrase in, in the text because there, especially at this period of Egyptian history, there was a, a mindset of theology there that when a person died, their heart, the essence of that person, was considered the heart, was taken and weighed on a scale. And if they weighed it against the feather of truth and righteousness, okay, and if their hearts were full of misdeeds, of, of evil things, well, <laughs> you're weighed against a feather. So uh, if, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you peg the other side, then you are immediately cast down to the devourous who eats you. I always thought it was odd that it was devourous, but we'll just leave that aside. Um, who eats you? And if your heart is even with the feather, purity of your heart, whatever, lightness of your good deeds, then you go on into the Egyptian afterlife. God uses that imagery in employing a term of judgment against Pharaoh while he's still alive. He's found to be heavy. Does that remind you of anything else? Another story maybe in the, in the Old Testament? Where a heart is weighed, a person is weighed. Daniel, maybe. The story of the son of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, or the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He's having a party to his own greatness. And the hand comes out of nowhere and writes on the wall, many, many tekel. It's like, okay, that's a little weird, too much wine, put it aside. David and Daniel interprets that and says, you've been, you've been weighed and found wanting. Same idea here. God is judging the king of this country um, on the scales of, of, his, of his justice. All right. Verse 15. What a way to start a morning. Why does God tell Moses to meet Pharaoh by the river? I mean, what was Pharaoh doing there? What, what is, why start with the river? Who's got it? Well, the river was a source of, of life for all of Egypt. I mean, that's where they got their water. That's where they uh, bathed. It was their source of life. We, we've seen the bathing early on with the Moses baby and the floating crib thing. The, the daughter of Pharaoh was bathing there. They actually worship the Nile. They worship the Nile. Okay? Um, there is a Greek historian named uh, Herodotus who, who recounts the understanding of, of, of Egypt's love for the Nile. He says, For even though a man has not before been told, he can see at once, if he have sense, that the Egypt to which the Greeks sail is land acquired by the Egyptians, given them by the river. The, the, well, let's, let's start this way. How, why is Pharaoh going down to the river? Why, why does God say, meet Pharaoh at the river in the morning? What, what's going on there? Bath, stroll. Yeah, yeah. There, there is a sense in which there was a, a an ongoing ritual that the Pharaoh would go down to the Nile in the mornings to pay homage to the Nile. 
There was a god, well, several gods associated with an owl, but one in particular, uh, we'll just call him Happy. Uh, H-A-P-I, it's probably Hoppy, but I like Happy, I think it's fun. Um, he's associated with the Nile. And, and during this period of flooding that the Nile would have, the, that's how the land was made fertile. It was a slow, it wasn't like the, 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 the Tigris or the Euphrates where the flooding was just massive, um, destructive, chaotic thing. It was a gentle inundation period and and it would and it would you know the sediment would be over the land it would be very fertile and that's how they um that's how they grew crops that's how they they sustain themselves what else is associated with a river that would give life food like what fish kind of important and this was a big diet for the egyptians fish um when the Nile flooded, the, some of the terms that they would give the Nile, it was considered to be the giver of life to the two lands, you know, the upper and lower deltas of Egypt, the Lord of sustenance, the one who causes the whole land to live through his provision, and on and on and on. There were even hymns that they wrote to Happy, the god of the Nile, um, who brings food, who is abundant of provisions, who creates every sort of his good things. Everything that has come into being is through his power, there is no district of living men without him. All of the blessings of the Nile evaporate when it cannot supply its goods. Yeah? I don't, I, maybe I'm reading too much in the text, but when you said that Pharaoh's heart was heavy or it was weighed, to me that, that speaks to stress. Like he's, he's kind of stressing out. Here, here are these two guys that are challenging his way of life. Challenging his godship, challenging his authority, challenging his people, and they hit him a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And each time they're kind of there, and they're, it doesn't appear like they're going anywhere. Yeah. And so maybe he's stressed out. He's his heart is heavy, and so he's going to the Nile. Maybe he always does, or maybe this time, and he's looking to the Nile. Back me up here. Yeah, back me up. Yeah. Like, take care of these guys. What am I going to do? And he's seeking guidance from this inanimate. Maybe. Maybe I don't. I don't know that I'd buy that just yet. I think later on you may see some of that because, because as we read at the end, he says he didn't give it a second thought. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have a question. It says in chapter seven that God said, "I will harden Pharaoh's heart." So did God make his heart harden, or did He choose to harden his own heart? Yes. <laughs> the, the The answer is yes. To which one? Both? To both. And, and here's why. Uh, back in chapter 4, before Moses had even gone to Egypt, and he's in the desert for 40 years, before he'd even left when he's at the burning bush, he, God says to Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. <clears throat> Hadn't even met him yet. I'm going to harden his heart. And the hardening that is involved there is a giving over, a judging to hardness that's already there, but he doesn't grant him a gift of repentance. He doesn't change his heart. He just gives him over to it, and it progresses to where he's, he does it. I mean, there's some pretty wild things that go on in Egypt through these plagues. So we're just starting the first one. And all of that, he continues to dismiss God, to not bow, to not obey, and it's a hardening, it's a judgment on him. And you see in Romans 9 where, where Paul brings that out. For this purpose I have raised you up, he says to Pharaoh, that, that I might show myself as God. He, he uses Pharaoh as a means of displaying 
his power, his sovereignty, and judges Pharaoh for the hardness of his own heart. So, yeah, that's a, a your eyebrows doing this, and all of ours do. It all, all of ours do. It's a difficult concept to, to wrestle with, but it's very clear in Scripture that God hardens his heart, but it's a hardening of giving over to, to him. And where do we all start? Right? Where we're all born is in, in Adam. And so all of us, by nature, Ephesians says, are children of wrath. And so God is basically doing justice to Pharaoh. And then on Israel, he's having mercy. So you see the, the freedom of God to do that in this situation. I think, too, with that idea of the being weighed and found wanting, mm-hmm. we're all weighed and found wanting. That's right. And we all, our evil deeds cannot, we can never be righteous. Right. But Christ gives us his righteousness, and that's what God sees. But and makes us light as a feather. But without him, we're always going to be weighed and Wanting to do what's against God. Sure. So this is such a great picture of the falling short of man, because they can they can emulate the things that Moses has done so far, making the snakes. Mm. They can also emulate turning water into blood. Yeah. But they can't overcome right. what he's already done. They right. fall short of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and and you see this idea. In Exodus, Exodus, the, the big overarching theme in Exodus really is God's sovereignty and redemption, God's sovereignty in saving His people, and um, and and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a big key to that. So let's, and we'll, we'll point to that a little bit more later on. So what he starts with the river. There's this daily ceremony. We think it's probably going on here. Um, and all of the all of the blessings of the Nile. Uh, are are gone when it can't supply its goods. There are other associated, there are other gods that are associated with the river as well. There's Osiris, who was a god of earth and vegetation, symbolized by the the flooding of the Nile. The Nile is actually believed to be his bloodstream, which is an odd thing. Um, so this is an attack. The, the 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 turning of the Nile into blood is an attack on the on the heart of Egyptian theology. On the heart of their culture, on the heart of their economy, it is a big deal. It's not a parlor trick. Look at verse 16. Let's go through that a little bit. I, I don't know if you remember back whenever Moses first had his audience with Pharaoh. And he says, I don't know this Yahweh. Remember that? God says, let my people go. I don't know your God. What does God say in verse 16? The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that I may serve, that they may serve me in the in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. What is it? Again, it's a challenge. What you're ignorant of, I'm about to make clear. That's what he's saying. He's taunting. Pharaoh's um, belief that Pharaoh himself is a god in the face of Yahweh. What do we know about this turning the, the water into blood? It was, was it real blood or was it kind of a sediment thing? Some, some have argued that it was kind of a, this red chemical reaction, the red tide 
kind of thing. They had in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, that that they Textually, it doesn't support that, does it? It's funny to me. These these critics always try to find a physical reason why these miracles happen. <clears throat> the biblical author is reporting a transformation of one substance into another, and they want to say it's dirt that's just kind of coming in from the inundation. How do we know that's factually? How do we know who is factually correct here? What, what's something from the text that specifically says it can't be well, sediment? Well, the fish died. Yeah. They well, killed the fish and, and they couldn't drink it. I mean, you can you can filter out sediment, but you can't filter out blood. Yeah. That had no contact with the river. Yeah. <coughs> and pools and, and tributaries and things like that that were not in contact with the river that wouldn't have had the. I don't. I don't think it would necessarily. I mean, there's some parts of Houston that do, but I don't think it's the dirt. Um, what about? Why bring out the point that the fish die? We talked about that a little bit before. Why bring out the point that the fish die? That's uh, it's a part of like the river giving them life. Right. So we have we have judgment on oops that's not right uh, on on their economy right fish the it's kind of hard to do any kind of naval trading when your boat's floating over thick blood yes. Direct attack on their theology. When you say culture, because their whole life is, ooh, wow. Their whole life is wrapped up in the river. And then their theology. Three areas of judgment that they have. What, uh, what, why point out that there will be blood in the vessels of wood and vessels of stone? I found this really interesting. You said a little bit of it already. Okay. Nope. No place you can hide. No place you can run from God. The text originally does not have the term vessels, buckets, jars, any of that. It just says the wood things, the stone things. Translations have provided and assumed this buckets, jars, vessels thing. And I actually like that the ESV, the eminently superior version, does the <laughs> vessels. What do we know about the mindset of the pagan view of the presence of their gods? What do we know? How, how is that communicated? What do they use? To make their idols. In fact, when you see that terminology, wood and stone, turn to Deuteronomy 28.36. Somebody read that for me. Deuteronomy 28, verse 36. 
Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. Okay. Skip on down to verse 64 of that same chapter, 28. Or scroll down, as the case may be. Which verse is uh, 64 is the next one. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Great. Chapter, not great that that would happen, but great that that shows the point. 29, verse 17. Same, same book. Flip over one page or scroll down a little bit. And uh, 29, verse 17. You see the same thing. You saw their detestable images and idols made of wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among them. I, I think what's going on, and those are just a few of the examples I just wanted to pull out. Because it's Deuteronomy and we'll get there someday when I'm 90. Um, I just want to pull out the wood and stone idea is, a, is an, is an, is an Id- idol phrase. It, the way that they related to their gods was they believed that the idols housed the presence of the god. That was their way of communicating. So they did what every god needs. Uh, they gave it a bath in the morning with the water from the Nile. Or, so they'd wipe down the wood. They'd wipe down the stone with water. So imagine this. Uh, Aaron stretches out his hand. Yes? It also could be like jars from the Nile since they worship the Nile itself. It could be certain water from the Nile. Sure. The like some holy water or whatever that they would be. It could be, yes. But, and, 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 but imagine this. Imagine this. Wood and stone idols. Okay? They're doing this morning ritual like Pharaoh is doing, going to the Nile, paying homage to Happy. He's very happy he's there. And, and they're wiping down the wood and the stone. And while they're doing this, it turns to blood. What visual is created by this? It's dying. It's, di- it's, it's certainly not what's normal, <laughs> right? That adult doesn't have power to not have that water. That God can't stop his idol from being defaced by, bloody, by blood. It's, it's a different substance. And who caused that to happen? The God of the Hebrews. Always a good answer in Sunday school. Uh, The the God of the Hebrews causes the water to turn into blood, and so even their rituals of cleansing their God, taking care of their God, um, he is not contained by a temple made with human hands as if he needed anything. Paul's argument to to, to Athens. They're having to care for their gods, their idols, Sparkled a little dust off his nose. God doesn't need that. He takes care of us. We don't take care of him. And he judges the idols of Egypt here. I think vessels is a good word because of the the idea of containing the presence of their deity. Um, All right. Look at uh, verses 20 through 25. And you see this culmination God said it, Moses and Aaron did it, everything happened just as God had said. What does this display? Sovereignty. Sovereignty. Nothing's going to stop God doing what he wants. He, he, he tells you what's going to happen, 
they're obedient to what God tells them is going to happen, and then it happens just the way He said it. Um, but you know, if you want to rebel, a day without rationalization is a day wasted. What happens next? What does Pharaoh do? He gets his parlor trick guys to come in. So apparently there was some water that had not yet been waved over. So what do these Egyptian magicians do with the little water that remains? Make the problem worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah? Watch my guys, man. And he, did, he waves it over, and this little bit of water is now turned into blood as well. They add to the plague. They add to the damage of their own people through their power. What does that tell you? They can do nothing to help themselves. They only make the matter worse. In their hardness of heart, all they do is add to their judgment. Does that sound consistent with the rest of Scripture? All your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Who's the source of life here? Always a good answer in Sunday school. Who's the source of power here? He took a drink. Somebody else answered. (laughs) Always a good answer in Sunday school. All right. So you have judgment upon judgment by their own action and trying to show themselves to be as good as, at least, the God of the Hebrews. They can add to their judgment, but they can't reverse it. Right? You never see any evidence of them being able to reverse it. Whatever they do only brings more judgment. And so naturally, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. That's where it ends. He sees this great display of God's power over Happy, over Osiris, over all the little vessels of wood and stone, over his own magicians who only add to the problem and don't really fix it. So he remains hardened. They must be using the same magic as my magicians, is what he's thinking. So while his people dig around the Nile looking for pockets of water to drink, Pharaoh goes to his palace and totally dismisses the plague. Totally dismisses it. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, or his palace, and he did not take even this to heart. By the way, um, he is weighed and judged. And the hardness of his heart. Yeah. Um, I like the physics and the science behind it or whatever. I'm just thinking, you know, they, his, his magicians, they turned a little bit of water in, into blood. Okay, I don't know if it's really blood or what was going on. But it says that seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much water's in the Nile, and I don't know how fast it moves. Mm-hmm. But that's a lot of water. Yeah. I'm assuming that, that for seven days it was like this. or It stunk. They were weary of drinking it. You can't drink blood. They did not drink it. They dug around the banks to see if they could find anything for seven days. Exactly. So that was a lot of water, even upstream, right? that was turned into blood that had to, to flow down and pass for seven days. That's a lot of water. That's not some happy, other trick. Happy wasn't so happy. Happy wasn't happy. Um, right. And what did the magicians do? <coughs> Here's some more blood. Um, seven, incidentally, we've, we've seen this before too, that seven is the number of completeness. 
we, we've talked about that seven days. Um, it signifies the complete conquest and derision of the river god, happy by Yahweh. Happy is judged. All right, a few minutes here. Uh, this plague is merely a foreshadowing of judgment that will come upon all believer, unbelievers. Um, Emma and I got into a discussion this morning on the way. <clears throat> she is <clears throat> in sixth grade, reading through Revelation, and um, it's like, Dad, it's going to get bad. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, you know, everything in Revelation is really a, 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 a re-imaging, a restating of images that are all in the Old Testament. There's no new image in Revelation. It's all pulled from the Old Testament prophets. And one of the things that's pointed out, there are two instances of of the waters being struck, a third of the water, then all of the water being struck, the fish die, turns to blood. That that image is there. What we have here in Egypt is a taste of what God talks about in Revelation, of bringing worldwide, striking the economy. Hmm. Uh, culture, theology, right? Uh, Revelation sixteen three through four. Who, who can get that real quick? It's at the it's at the end of the book. Sixteen three through four. Somebody read that for me. Three through four. Yes, sir. You know, it's an amazing thing. We don't hear too many praise songs about God's judgment. You don't. Hear... You see them all the time in Revelation. The three things that God's praised for is creator, redemption, and judgment. We don't. We don't see the third one often, ever. And um, I, I don't think I've ever. You may know. <clears throat> care, care to write one? I don't know that we get much traction on on the Christian music stations these days. Yay, God, you're a righteous judge. I don't see. Um, and yet, you see that often. And, and, and the extent and the intensity of these plagues that you see uh, in Revelation is, is much greater than what we see. Of course it is. Um, Look at John. We'll talk about that tonight. I hope you. I hope you did a question. Oh, I'm actually here. Oh, thank you. That's my question for tonight. Okay. <laughs> I'll try to fit those in. Um, little plug. Tonight we're doing a panel discussion on your views of the end, the different views of the end. It's stop the elders' night. Yeah. So submit your questions. I've got 40 at home waiting for me to categorize. I'm moderating, safely moderating. Um, so uh, I'll be asking the other elders questions on what they believe about the end. So feel free to come tonight. It's going to be interesting to say the least. Look at John 7, 37 through 38. When I was reading through this, um, I, I think that all of Scripture points to Jesus. Because he said it does. Kind of safe bet there. Look at John 7, 37 
through 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Revelation 22.1 says this, if I can get to it. Revelation 22.1 Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. I, I think that it's interesting that you have this image of Christ being a source of water. He's a uses other metaphors, bread, the door, other things. But there is this image of Jesus as being a river of life. Drink of me and live. Um, Pharaoh and Egypt are judged because judged by turning what they held dear, what meant the most to them, into not a source of life, but a source of death, right? At the cross, God took what meant most to him and poured out his judgment so that the river of life ran blood. Do you see that? Instead of judging us by what we hold dear, those who are in Christ, he pours out his wrath on the river of life. And yet the river doesn't stay bloody right he's resurrected he again is a source eternally for us what we should have suffered in judgment he put on his son um, it's it's either dealt with at the cross the judgment that is deserved or it's dealt with here with, with, with what we prize. What do we prize? Do we prize Christ or do we prize Silicon Valley and iPhones and YouTube? What do we prize? Do we value what he values? Because if we value Christ, judgment's already fallen on Christ. He bore it for us even though he was holy, blameless, and undefiled. Either we deal with it at the cross or it will be dealt with on our last day. Um, look at Matthew 21, 44. We're doing a little Bible drill this morning. Matthew 21, 44. Somebody read that for me. Matthew 21, 44. Two ways to deal with Jesus. Fall on him in humility and be broken on him. Or he will fall on you and crush you in judgment. Those are the two options we have. There's really no middle ground. It's God's scale is even lighter than a feather. <laughs> it's Christ who is completely pure. That's the standard. So falling on him and being broken is the only the only option we have to be saved. Look at 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16. 2 Corinthians 2, I'll just read it to you. 
For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Ones who are broken, ones who are crushed. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And then the great statement, who is sufficient for these things? (laughs) We ain't peddlers, he goes on to say. As you are living um, in your environment, in your school, work, whatever it is, training, um, death-defying acts of courage and all that, um, as you're doing that, and as you're fellowshipping and, and, and meeting people who are not Christians, what is it about a fragrance? Is the fra- See, I went biking yesterday, and before we left... I realized that I had not washed my clothes from the last time we got like Put those puppies on, I was going to be sweating anyway. What is fragrance? <laughs> is fragrance the thing itself, or, it is, or is it a, 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 an effect of the thing? Is it an effect of the thing? What is it? It's an effect. And yet, how we perceive it is not always the same. I mean, dude, this is this is the worst smell I've ever smelled. Come to open the locker. You gotta smell this. Why would you do that? It's awful. Why would you invite your friends? <laughs> and yet, it affects people differently. The di- the different smells. It's not the thing. The fragrance doesn't change them. Their response to it is different based upon, well, how God created them, right? Statement on sovereignty. Fragrance does not determine the reaction of the smeller. It simply is. And as you simply are in Christ, that has an effect. Either people are going to be angry with you because you don't agree with their position on certain various hot-button issues, because you believe that Christ created us a certain way (laughs) to live out a certain type of life. Um, Or they're convicted by that fragrance, and they want to be part of that. And they come to Jesus that way. Our job is simply to, to be who we are in Christ. To speak it, to live it, and leave the effect to God and what he's done in that person. Yes? You know, you pointed out earlier that the Nile stunk. Um, we find out later when the Israelites leave Egypt that some Egyptians go with them. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about that this morning. We don't know at what point which Egyptians went, oh, I better pay attention to this God of the Hebrews. He's, he's really real. Whether that, that Thank happened you. for some of them at the point of the Nile turning to blood, mm-hmm. and some of them it happened later, After the firstborn is killed. In, yeah. in, the, in the plague process. But we do know that there were Egyptians that, that lived through these plagues, and yet it was a mercy to them just because they, they came Incidentally, did the Hebrews live through the, pra- the, the plagues as well? You mean they weren't raptured out? Okay, that's for tonight. I'm sorry. Okay, yes, there is a um, there is a, an effect that judgment should have of of, of breaking of. Well, it's a mercy that he didn't wipe them out like Sodom and Gomorrah. 
He's calling them. He's showing them who he is. He's showing them his power, his authority, his sovereignty, and his kindness by not destroying them all at once. So it's kindness that should lead us to repentance. And many times, unfortunately, it does not. Anyway, any, any other, any other I've, I've thrown out a bunch of themes, I think, that are from this passage that I think are, are relevant. Any questions, comments? Yeah. I think there's, I think there's a, a sense of community here that is also kind of drawn out. Is mm-hmm. that when Pharaoh sins by not listening to God and by trying to um, pray to the Nile and all that kind of thing, He's bringing judgment upon his entire kingdom. And when you and I sin inside of the body or when non-believers sin, when we all sin, it affects everybody else around us. Mm -hmm. And I think lots of times we we grow up in this uh, isolated Christianity. Oh, well, you know, my sin is is between me and God. You know, just stick your nose out of my business, you know, go away or whatever. Yeah, judge not lest you be judged. Yeah. Just kind of throw that down. Yeah. But that's not true. That's not reality. Right. Reality is that we live in community and we're supposed to. Mm-hmm. And my sin affects everybody around me. Mm-hmm. Just as, as the, the blood from the Nile infiltrated their entire culture. That's right. That's right. It's good. So sin is not an isolated event. There is no sin that doesn't affect everyone around you. Um, maybe not direct consequences of it. But there is a sense in which the culture, righteousness exalts a nation, sins are approached to any people. I think there's another picture here too, and that's that when, when we resist God's influence, you know, Moses and Aaron, they went to Pharaoh. Mm. And if Pharaoh had said yes the first time, okay, I submit to God, let's follow him. I don't, I mean, it's pure speculation, of course, but I don't think the rest of these plagues would have happened. No, I don't think so either. His Wait a minute, I really wanted to turn, yeah, I don't think that would have happened. Right, and yeah. so because he resisted, they got worse and worse and worse. At first, they went to him and asked permission or told him, right. you know, whatever. Well, then the snakes, you know, the, the staff, they swallowed it up, and that was more in affront. Mm-hmm. And now it's starting to affect their entire, you know. It's more than just humiliation at this point. Right. It's humiliation and an attack on the economy, culture, and theology. Yeah. It's worse. And it will continue to get worse. Uh, until the very end, yeah. Could that possibly be um, what's happening in today's world right now, like the tsunami in Japan and then the things in the world? I mean, not necessarily, but to some degree, when the tsunami happened in Japan, it attacked its economy, mm-hmm. its culture. I think there are cycles of judgment throughout history that you see. You certainly saw it in the Roman Empire. You, you saw it in the British Empire. Um you, you, you probably are seeing it some today uh, with with America, um, one one in particular. Um, I, you know that yes, I, in the sense that Jesus said that when um, there, there's a story uh, uh, in, in one of the gospels where where there's a tower that falls, and there are, are men who who die because of the tower falling and. And they bring it up to Jesus. Oh, don't you feel bad about this? He says, look, uh, do you think that you're more righteous than those guys in the tower? Which is interesting. You think you're more righteous than those guys in the tower? Um, Repent, or you will all likewise perish. Well, what is he saying to that? He's saying that all of us start from the baseline of Adam. that, That we're dead in sin. And 
God's not unjust for judging Egypt this way. He's not unjust for judging Pharaoh this way. He's hardened in his rebellion. Um, what's amazing is that God has mercy at all. And so when we see these things, these escalating incidences of, of uh, bad economy and other, other judgments on the type of rulers we have and those kinds of things, um, be thankful for God's mercy in forbearing wrath that he could bring down. Pray for repentance to fall on the nation and the culture. Um, I told Emma this morning that you know we have no, no reason to fear the wrath of God because we're in Christ. But be in prayer for those who do, who, who do have something to fear. So that's kind of a, a reminder to us that he's God, we're not. Um, any other... It, wow, 10-10. I went by quickly. What, what, any other questions, if you dare? Okay, let's go ahead and pray. And Bye, Joshua. Um, God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for um, your grace and your mercy and that the wrath that we had stored up or that you had stored up for us because of our sin, past, present, and future, you poured out on Jesus. And we pray that you would make us conscious of that, that we would live that in, in brokenness and humility before you, thankfulness because of what you've done for us in Christ. For those in this room who don't know Jesus, I pray that you would grant them the gift of repentance and of faith, that they would turn from sin, they would trust Christ, and therefore not have a need to fear judgments to come and that are coming because we find our rest and our peace with you in, in Christ and what you've done for us in him. I pray for the next service. I pray for uh, Philip as he tackles 13 chapters in Isaiah. Uh, I pray that uh, you make us uh, attentive, that we uh, absorb what your word says in Isaiah this morning, and that we are again um, awed by your power, by your grace, by your mercy, and your love for your people in spite of, um, in spite of our sin. We pray for holiness in our, in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.